if you repeat results, you are in the business that is diagonally opposite to innovation. You know, I've heard people say it's all about execution. Blackberry was executing really well. Trouble is, the world changed while they were busy executing. The most powerful catalyst for getting people into the right frame of mind to do something different and to innovate is actually the sharing of stories. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine podcast. On this episode, we'll be looking at choosing the right tech stack to fuel innovation in your company. We'll talk about why the technologies your teams use matter, what the most successful product teams do to ensure the work they're doing has an impact, and how to avoid shiny new toy syndrome when it comes to adding new tools to your tech stack. Here with us today to talk about those topics and more is Latif Nanji. Latif is the co-founder and CEO of RoadMonk, a roadmapping enterprise SaaS platform that serves thousands of product innovators. RoadMonk's customers include Amazon, The New York Times, Nike, Coca-Cola, Bloomberg, Adobe, and Citibank. Prior to RoadMonk, Latif was a senior product manager at MyoVision Technologies and the co-founder and CFO of PokerSpace.com, which represented the start of his entrepreneurial journey. Welcome to the podcast, Latif. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. So let's start out giving listeners a quick overview of your background. What's your day-to-day role at RoadMonk and how big is the RoadMonk team? Yeah, well, I think, uh, well, just to start, I'll start with the second question. The RoadMonk team today is 65 and we're aggressively hiring to probably end the year closer to 75 people. Uh, My day-to-day is something that is continuously changing. I like to look at it mostly on a quarter by quarter basis. So if you look at this year, Q1, we had done a huge ramp up with respect to hiring new leaders. And so a lot of my time is spent with the new leadership team, teaching them the business, making sure that they can have the autonomy and the rollout that they wanted. Within Q2, we were doing a lot of changes operationally, some team structure work. Um, And then Q3, I've been focused a lot more on data a lot more on getting the data infrastructures set up in our business to the next level so that we can have a lot more visibility throughout our entire customer journey. So when I look at even just this week, you know, I spend probably the majority of my time working with the finance team and probably the other half of my time helping the other leaders recruit. So working and using my network, setting up coffees. So, you know, quarter to quarter, I usually pick a few big boulders to work on. And then day to day, I'm, you know, working with the team to help level up, um, whether it's learning or just an operational project, because I tend towards to be a more of a hands-on leader um, for 50% of my time and then hands-off. But of course, at the end of the day, I think we're always trying to put ourselves out of that next job and then continuously work our way up the organization philosophically, because of course, um, we want to make sure we have enough time to think strategically about all the components of the business as one. But like, it's hard to do when you are the CEO to level up to that next job. Yeah, the, I, I like to say to other founders that, and, and just in general, I think to be a good founder is basically a function of how fast you can learn. And when I look at certain organizations that have incredible ideas or incredible products, some of the stagnation that can happen is really the under the umbrella of experience and how fast they learn. And so if they're willing to consume more information, understand from their peers, understand how markets operate and how products and technologies get built, they can often find ways to accelerate their business 
in ways they hadn't previously thought of, which is why, you know, second and third time founders, this is obviously you no know, surprise, tend to do better. Yeah. So for those who may not be familiar with it, Roadmonk is a web-based SaaS product with thousands of users, as I mentioned in the intro. Just out of curiosity, can you give us a sense of how often you're making changes or updates to the Roadmonk product? And and maybe actually, can can you give just a, a high-level overview of what it allows people to do? Yeah, absolutely. So we serve tens of thousands of uh, product people as well as other people that are involved in the roadmapping process. So in essence, we have displaced tools like Excel and PowerPoint with respect to planning, prioritization, and visualizing and sharing roadmaps so that there's better alignment and transparency across organizations. And this really is the balance between this whole concept of agile and waterfall. A lot of companies still today who think they're doing agile are just doing accelerated waterfall. And that's okay. In fact, a lot of what good organizations do, Slack, Intercom, do that. It takes months to develop an idea that they are have high conviction around. And so for us and our user base, we are very much focused on the life cycle of mapping right from the beginning of an idea that comes in, whether it's through a concept from a customer piece of feedback to a conversation that you're having with a customer, and then being able to translate that all the way through that journey onto a roadmap and a plan and providing updates to the rest of the organization. So they actually know what's happening and how it impacts their day-to-day, whether they're in marketing, whether they're in engineering, or externally facing as a customer. So to the question of, I guess, how are we making updates? Well, we've got a globally a global set of customers. Um, you know, With over 2,000 customers and growing every month, we need to be making changes really fast. So we release multiple times a week, but our main releases happen, you know, weekly on Thursday nights. And we have, you know, servers globally distributed for, for obvious reasons. And we have a bunch of enterprise customers as well that have their own, you know, servers and such. But for us in our process, we make sure that it's very design driven. So having a design background myself, I'm I'm very committed to the idea of a very great design vision that allows us to really think through problems, to really create optionality, and then make sure that we take a lot of that information, give it to the customer, showcase it through, take them through that um, experience of what we're building, roll out an initial beta, especially if it's a larger project, and then get some feedback, make sure we're tracking those engagement metrics, and then from there, roll that into a a GA launch. Um, So that's roughly about our development process and how often we are releasing right now. And and let me ask, you mentioned creating optionality in that answer. What what is what is that concept? Yeah, so this was sort of inspired by I think good designers do this, and a lot of what I've read from that book, Creativity, that came out of Pixar. When we get a reaction to that first designer, that first instinct about what something should look like or feel like, that's great. And a lot of people have those natural intuitions. But what's more interesting is when you come and present to um, a committee of people that are reviewing the design and you see three or four options, you can immediately get a sense of the trade-offs that are being made. Because if you say this is the best design, I may have to just take your word for it now. But if someone said, these are the three or four designs I have, here's why option B is better than A, C, and D, and here are the reasons and trade-offs I thought about, it doesn't necessarily tell me why B is the best, it tells me why A, C, and D won't work, and therefore B has to be the option 
that will make the most sense for scaling with our users and the current problems or future problems that we're looking to solve in the application. So for for, for it's just a good way of systematically thinking, it also keeps that into person that person or that designer accountable to themselves as opposed to just coming up with that instinctive approach to design. Okay, got it. So let me get into the the reason why we're here, choosing the right tech stack for innovation. So you're a big believer based on personal experience that it can be that innovation can be turned into a repeatable process if you provide your teams with a proper set of resources like the right tech stack. So everybody listening myself included comes at a term like tech stack with their own biases. So for someone in marketing like me, that probably means WordPress, Marketo, Salesforce, Google Analytics, and a number of others that I could throw out there. But when you talk about a tech stack to fuel innovation, what are some of the tools or services that are actually in that tech stack? Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll definitely run down the list here of what we use and share that, and then kind of give you give the audience a little bit more color as to how I think about choosing a tech stack at what point in the organization and how it evolves. But for us, you know, our CS team uses client success. We're on HubSpot, Salesforce, um, Zero for Accounting, uh, ChartMogul, Chargebee handles our subscriptions, more, and then Slack, obviously, which is a no-brainer, and Intercom as well, which is a lot of tools. But generally, in any organization at our size, there's probably at least 15 to 20 tools being used at any given point. Um, I'm also using something called 15.5, which is just really personally a great way for me to manage all my one-on-ones and superhuman as well, which is a new email client. Um, but a personal tool that I always like to throw out there is clean my Mac, which if you, anyone in the audience is listening and always runs out of space on a 128 or 256, uh, that thing can free up 10 or 15 gigs every two weeks for you. So a really handy tool, but more importantly, it's like how this actually drives innovation. I think the actually first place to calibrate on is, the number of startups that have been successful as a percentage of history has relatively been the same, which means that your tech stack isn't necessarily correlated with success. Um, what it has actually opened up is for the number of startups in total, in absolute terms, to have the opportunity to be bootstrapped, to start and innovate ideas. And so on absolute terms, there's more successful companies today than there were 10 years ago. So in that sense, it's actually been incredibly helpful because ideas can get off the ground a lot faster. But one of the things that's really important is to think about the tech stack in relation to where the business is going to be in a few years, and in some cases, five or 10. One of the graphs that I always like to draw, and hopefully I can do a mental version of this, is on one axis have customers, and on the other axis have your ACB, or the average contract size that you have on an annual basis. And if you want to be, you know, a $100 million revenue business, let's say you're working back from, if you have one customer that's paying you $100 million revenue, you don't need any tools. You put it in, you don't even need a spreadsheet to manage that, right? You could have maybe 100 customers paying you a million dollars each or 1,000 customers paying you $100,000 each. And then if you look at each of those points along that curve, there's different tool sets that you need to evaluate. So an organization that's got a million customers paying them $10 a month or $10 a year, they're going to need to automate everything. They're going to need larger tool sets, bigger financial infrastructure for billing, a ton more automation, and 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 information to help surface problems that are going on. But an organization that's more enterprise can probably 
pick tools that are a little bit more lightweight that give them the information and slower, slowly roll them into the organization. So it's really just trying to figure out what kind of business you are and working back from that horizon and figuring out that data point. Um, and if you're a business that's spread across that horizon, which a lot of SaaS companies are, where they have SMB, mid-market, and enterprise, what is the total number of customers you're going to have? Because you're going to need to manage that from an account standpoint. We're kind of sitting right in the middle of that curve where we've got you know, a spread of customers on every end of the spectrum, a lot of different dollar sizes. So for us, we needed to make sure that our tool sets were driving our innovation, that we were automating to a reasonable degree. And so one of the jobs that I actually used to do as a product manager for two years of my product career was I implemented NetSuite, but for operating the entire business. So I dove into every single department, treated every team as a set of customers and worked with them to get the requirements in, worked with a technologist person, and then was building tools also outside of that to do sales and and what that taught me was to actually think about the strategy in the context of my employees or team members as customers and understand their requirements at scale. So a lot of these teams weren't going to go past a few people if they were, let's say, marketing. Um, but sales was exploding, so we needed to make sure that the infrastructure for the CRM matched what their processes and procedures were. And you guys do something that's a little bit unconventional for a company your size, I would venture to guess, you have a product manager who handles internal tools. So can you walk us through why you made a decision like that, how you figured it was such an important piece of your business that you needed to have somebody dedicated on staff to actually be the person to, to oversee all of that? Yeah, so a lot of companies will hire some business analysts or they'll maybe even outsource a lot of their implementation. And what ends up happening is that all the data just gets thrown in and hacked in and then you wake up one day at you know 15 or 20 million ARR or even 50 million ARR, and I've heard this happen numerous times, and everything is basically a shit show, if I can use that language on your podcast here. And it dawned upon me that when you've got maybe 15 or 20 tools and maybe three primary tools, whether it's you know Salesforce or HubSpot or, or Client Success in our case for our CS team, those are big tools. Those are not small tools. Those are, those are, those are pieces of software that do need some operations. And if you don't dedicate someone really senior or someone who knows how to handle them, they won't scale with the business. And then the technology stack actually becomes a hindrance to your progress or it slows it down and it becomes a bit invisible. And basically people get frustrated. They don't enjoy doing their job efficiently. It takes away from the time that they should be spending with customers or having important meetings within the organization. That is the trade-off that's really hard for senior leadership to often see. Now, the reason we brought it in as early as we did is because I happened to have done this job in a prior life. I knew the value of having someone focus in on building a billing system correctly was absolutely vital to the success and scaling. If we need to experiment, if we need to do things on checkout, that'll help our customers be more successful as well as our bottom line. And not having that in early enough is just a hindrance to growth. It's, it's quite simple. So I actually found an ex-founder um, that had a little bit of product management experience but wanted to kind of turn you know, his day-to-day -day into fully working in that. And I said, being able to operate an entire set of tools means you learn how to, the entire business operates right at the ground level, even lower than some of those teams actually even know themselves. And that, to me, is just such a powerful position. And that person also reduces so much of the stress of other teams because there's someone in there that can help them solve those problems in their, those tools 
And instead of getting stuck in a marketing automation software for hours trying to figure out something, there's someone sitting over in the next room that you can just call over that can help you with that. And that is, that to me just is an empowering thing to do. And um, the ROI on that is uh, really high, uh, I could only imagine. Yeah. So so let me ask you a little bit about how the sausage is made at, at Roadmonk. So you, you have the perfect tech stack for innovation. What are some of the ways that new ideas get brought to the forefront and travel through the process to the point that they're deployed into production and actually are serving your customers in some form or fashion? Sure. To be quite honest, I don't think we do this perfectly. I think there's, a, you know, if I had to put a score next to this, I'd put a needs improvement. We certainly have had our, our challenges with tools. We've had to actually change off two major systems. Uh, I won't, one of them was a marketing automation software from Salesforce. I won't give it the name. I will um, But <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> <you're>, <laughs> I'm sure your audience probably already knows what I'm talking about. Uh-huh. And moving to HubSpot has been fantastic. So we, I just don't like bad-mouthing companies because I think everyone has their challenges and I know how difficult it is to start a company. Of so, course. you know, getting an idea and actually getting it into the roadmap it's something that we, we challenge ourselves with, and we do have challenges, but for the most part, we use primarily two systems, client success and intercom, where a lot of that information is tracked, and then that goes into Roadmonk. And so we have all of that information stored in Roadmonk that comes from those CS tools. And then from there, it's surfaced up to the audiences, the product management team obviously prior plans and prioritizes based on the particular strategy that we have going forward, and then can bucket that information. Do we need, in my opinion, there's some systematic things that I'd like to do better along that way. But for the most part, it works. And the reason it works in our particular case, one, we have the best types of users in the world. And I'm absolutely biased in this because product managers give the best feedback and they give it directly and they say what they want. And that just simply can't be underestimated. So from there, once we, and they obviously write it in a, in a very clear and concise way. And then two, all of that information actually becomes very visible within um, the organization. So we have a channel in Slack called Customer Feedback and any interesting and both negative and positive um, go into that channel so that the, the whole organization can see it, right? Because it could be touching so many different aspects. And what I love about this particular sort of channel is that engineers and people that I would say that are more on the maker side or not necessarily exposed to the customers often as everyone would love everyone to be, they get to have that conversation with the customer success rep right on the spot in front of the organization. And then it's like, hey, so why do they say this? Could we build it better? Could we build this better? Could we change this? How do we improve that? Those conversations are happening across the organization. And so when someone onboards into our organization, we tell them, Go look at the last two to three weeks of the customer feedback channel. See what ideas came from the market. See which customers were asking for it. See what our team thinks about it. You can kind of learn the entire business just by injecting yourself into that channel. And so I think, you know, the question is how do you get an idea to actual execution? It's actually what's happening in between is become both a communication and transparency tool, but both an onboarding tool as well. So I think that's some real magic that we've, we've nailed at uh, Roadmap here. Okay, nice. So let me ask about about data. What are you you mentioned data earlier in 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 the podcast, and it was more for at the strategic level as one of the one of the things you looked at quarter over quarter to try to improve. but but for your product teams, are there specific metrics that you're looking at to measure 
to ensure that whatever they're, whatever it is they're working on is getting the business results that they want? Yeah, so the number one metric we look at is retention. And externally, retention for a lot of investors, if you're talking to those sorts, are looking at retention on a dollar or a logo basis. So the reason that sort of works is because it's easy to understand. You go up if you expand, you go down if you contract your term. Um, we look at retention a little bit more systematically. So retention to us is combination of activation, monetization, and engagement in the application. And so on a user and account basis, we look at how are they progressing with respect to, and we have about seven or eight different like kind of things we look at for sort of combined health score are all these different little attributes. How do they get onboarded successfully? Did they get to the primary actions we wanted to see? Um, did we see that they're continuing to do those? How is the logins across all those users? So we have a very systematic approach to doing that um, within the product team. On top of that, that, and those tactical things are really great because we can see when we roll out a new feature, even in our beta, we want to be able to look before we go to GA that says, is this going to actually have the impact? Right, because a lot of these people use beta for feedback, which is great. But are you getting it for the thing you intended to, which is value and usage, right? And sometimes usage can obviously come in a whole bunch of different flavors. But in our case, it's a lot of creation of stuff, as well as updating and then presenting. And while we track those things, we want to make sure that they're at a level that we're content with before moving to GA. And so that is something that that we look at with respect to data in the product team. And more holistically, we also look at things, of course, like NPS, overall engagement, overall retention in the more traditional sense. And so we look at all of those metrics as well. Um, but you know, when I'm talking to my product team, I like to hold them accountable to the feature-by-feature feature metrics because those, for me, are the best leading indicator of success and health of a particular set of uh, upcoming customers or current customers. And you, you've used an acronym a couple of times. I just want to be sure for myself and listeners, we know what it is. What does GA stand for? GA stands for general availability. Okay, got so it. Or the entire user base has okay. access to using that particular feature. Okay, cool. Um, so, so let me ask, do you ever worry that too much focus is being paid to the technology or technologies that your teams are using and, and if so, how do you avoid shiny ball syndrome or shiny new toy syndrome? Well, it's a good question. How do you avoid shiny new ball syndrome? I think, I think our organization, um, most organizations have probably felt this as tool fatigue and they got too many tools and then they just stop using a bunch of them. And then there's just this upper maximum that they hit. And I think that not having too many tools is probably a good place to start a business. If I'm starting a new company and, you know, I've got a million in ARR, having more than a few systems is just too much on the team. And if you're committed to a tool like Salesforce or Intercom, great. Just make sure it's set up correctly and it takes the burden or overhead away from people. The challenge of continuously introducing new tools is something that while I've thought a lot about our particular model is we have a product manager 
who enables that process. So if you want to launch a tool globally, you have to go through the product manager. It's, it's the same framework as customers. If you want to build a feature, you got to go through the product management team. And so setting that filter in pretty early on was great. I was acting mostly as that filter because of my particular set of skills and background. And I also exactly knew what tool stack I wanted to use because I had done an extensive amount of research on the tools and trialed most of them. So it's fairly easy for me to kind of come in and say, these are the tools that we want to use. And we've been, for the most part, you know, shooting at around 85 to 90% in terms of our, both, I would say, good efficacy in terms of choice, but also like usage of those tools, which I'm obviously thrilled about. Um, my, my, my general recommendation, though, is, is really to think about the type of business you're growing. Is it, again, the 10 customers at $10 million each, or is it the 100,000 customers paying you $10? Where, where are those companies on the spectrum? And if you can kind of write down those notes and say, in two years from now, we're going to have 200,000 users, what kind of databases and tools am I going to need for that? You sit down and you go through that exercise, the list will be, become a little bit more obvious. Yeah. Okay, Latif, I know we're running up on time, but I have a, a couple of questions that I want to get through. Uh, one, because I'm super interested in your answer, having read a little bit of a preview on Medium. Your background includes two years working on a poker startup called Poker Space, which means you have a deeper understanding of the game than most. You read a very interesting article on Medium, which I just alluded to, about the similarities between playing poker and product management. What do the two have in common? Yeah, okay. I'm a, I'm a big poker junkie and i'm not even ashamed to use that word because (laughs) poker has done so much for my life personally from a monetary standpoint early on when i used to play we'll call it back in 2005 and two between 2005 and eight but really there's three things that kind of come to mind number one was bankroll management um this is part and parcel about how to fund and finance and think about a business And even you can think of it in terms of product marketing, because what's interesting about product marketing is that you only have so much currency with your customers before, you know, whether you're overdoing it with them or underdoing with them. So making sure that you don't overspend and no matter how great of a player someone was there, if you're in the poker community, some of the best players in the world constantly are going broke. And it's just because they don't like, they understand the math, but when it comes to having, you know, I've got $10,000 to play and they start buying into a $1,000 buy-in, you only get to do that 10 times. That can go within a month or even in a day, depending on what um, kind of game you're playing in. So it's really to be mindful of that. The second is learning and the speed of learning. And I kind of talked about this. One of the things that's a common phrase in poker is this term called resulting. And resulting is always focusing in on the outcome rather than the decision. And so we have to break those two apart. You can have a good decision leading to a good outcome. You can have a good decision lead to a bad outcome. And of course, you could have made a bad decision and have a good outcome, and then a bad decision make a bad outcome. And really, it's thinking about that good decision made a bad outcome, right? And not necessarily trying to go, oh my God, like we must have screwed up on our decision. No, it's the outcome just we couldn't, there was market forces that came in that were totally blindsided us. Or when we make a good, um, a bad decision and a bad outcome, are we learning fast enough from that? And so poker, you only get small bits of information because a lot of the times those hands are folded. So when you get to play with other people and you get to do your evaluation and someone looks at your data on your handset, are you willing to learn and iterate fast enough? 
And it's clear over a longer period of time that your results will match those decisions on a short period of time. So making sure you're thinking in long term and understanding that concept of resulting um, has forced me to think about all the decisions I make on a week to week basis, write them down, understand if they were the right decision and what were those outcomes and were those the desirable outcomes. The last one is much more qualitative. It's emotional intelligence. There's a concept in poker called tilting. And if anyone's played poker, even at the most basic of level has felt this experience where they were on the receiving end of something that was probably a probabilistically very low and shouldn't have happened. And it resulted in them losing chips or money if they're playing for, for, for stakes. And that's where being calm and not riding that wave of a negative emotion can really change the outlook of a particular situation, which is why we all love leaders that can steady a ship and be emotionally intelligent. And that to me is, you know, something that I look for in all my product managers, quite frankly, as well. I love the analogy um, where, where the wolf in Pulp Fiction, you know, after that scene where they accidentally, um, Samuel L. Jackson and uh, John Travolta shoot the guy in the back seat, and <laughs> they have to clean up this mess, but they don't know how to take care of this. And they're freaking out, obviously, and the wolfman comes in, and he just says, this is how we're going to do. He takes command of the situation, is very level-headed, gets them to listen to them, maybe maybe within a bit of an assertive tone because it's a movie, but gets the situation done and has everyone calm at the end of it all. And that, to me, is like the greatest learning I've gotten from poker because you're put in those situations constantly if you're playing that game. And if you can ride through that, that could be the difference between you getting third in a tournament and first, which pays usually three to four X that price. So the, the stakes are just incredibly high at that level. Yeah, there's a, a great poker anecdote about Annie Duke in Charles Duhigg's new book, Smarter, Faster, Better, I think it is, where, where he talks about her learning to play. Her brother, uh, Howard Letterer, I think, was a, was a famous poker player. But uh, but it, it talks about how she sees poker as it's more like it's a it's a conversation. You're having a conversation with the other players around the table to try to get them to tell you what exactly they have. And I can see some parallels between product managers, I imagine, uh, and and their customers, uh, and 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 that too. You know, like you're basically trying to elicit out from people what they what they want or what they have or maybe what they need. Um, so anyway, if you have not listened to or read that book, uh, I, I would definitely recommend it. I think you'd get a kick out of it. I would have to second that. I'm actually in the middle of it right now. So the timing is rather perfect. Uh, um, very nice. I was actually, I used to play poker with uh, both Annie and Howard back in Aruba. So that was 2005. Um, so many, many years ago. Um, but yeah, a really great book for for the audience to to dive into. Yeah, definitely. So I, I will get you out of here on this. Uh, we're recording this in November. It will come out in December. When is the best time to put, put to put together a product roadmap? The best time to put together a product roadmap. Well, usually a lot of people are doing end of year planning, so now is a great time. Obviously, I can't say that. You know, we generally see usage a lot higher now, but we also see usage really high in, in, in the end of the summer months. So people are iterating on their roadmaps monthly, sometimes biweekly, um, and sometimes quarterly. It just depends on the organization um, size and scale. And there's a lot of use cases. You know, sometimes you're a pharmaceutical company and you're doing a 20-year roadmap, so the updates are a little less frequent. Sometimes you're building products that need to get out in a matter of, you know, 
weeks that are Black Friday like, and you've got to have a tighter timeline. So it all just depends on the context. Yeah. Well, I have to imagine that the end of the year would be a great time to do it. So I'm going to recommend that everybody out there, uh, if you're interested in putting together a product roadmap for 2019, go check out Roadmonk. Uh, it's Latif's company, and uh, I have signed up for it. Uh, and I'm looking forward to doing great things in the marketing department here at Three Pillar in 2019 using Red Monk. Latif, the only regret that I have is we did not get a chance to talk about the podcast, but we will put a link to it in the show notes. It is the Road Monk podcast. It's out there everywhere that good podcasts can be found. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with me about uh, about the right tech stack to fuel innovation. And uh, we look forward to getting this episode out there for listeners. Thanks for having me, Will. Absolutely. The Innovation Engine Podcast is brought to you by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. Head to www.3pillarglobal.com to learn more about our services. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and Spotify, and we post extensive show notes for each episode on the Three Pillar website at threepillarglobal.com slash podcast. That's three with the number three. Last but not least, we're always striving to improve here on the Innovation Engine podcast, and we get asked often who listens to it. We can see from our analytics that a pretty healthy number of you do listen, but raw download numbers don't do much to help us learn who out there is listening, what your day-to-day jobs are like, and what kinds of topics or which specific guests you might like to hear from. So if you'd like to help make the innovation engine a little bit better, please take a few short minutes out of your day and shoot me a quick email with some of that information. Will.Sherlin at 3PillarGlobal.com is my email address. Also, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and message me there. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next time.